And self-awareness to me is the one of the biggest elements within that. Because again, you know, who are you? Who are you? What are your strengths? What are your areas of opportunity or weaknesses? It's okay to say weaknesses. <laughs> and, you know, know that about yourself and play to your strengths and bless the diversity that is the human race. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nickel. Welcome to show number 15 of Blunt Dissection, which has been downloaded almost 4,000 times per month. So thank you for listening. On today's episode, it is a pleasure to be joined by Dr. Mia Carey. When I ask for guest recommendations from you guys, Mia's is a name that comes up frequently, and here's why. She has seen animal care from multiple different and interesting vantage points, and she has excelled in them all. She began her career as a marine biologist before trading dolphins for dogs and completed her veterinary degree at the University of Florida. After graduation, she had a short spell in general practice before moving into her first industry role with Novartis, where she spent many years rising to the level of national sales trainer and brand manager. She then moved over to the snappily titled Boringer Ingelheim Vet Medica, where she held the roles of marketing manager for companion animal section and eventually regional sales manager for the mid-Atlantic area. Her career then took a new direction when she traded a life in pharma with a role as Head of Training and Innovation for the North American Veterinary Community, a role she last year somewhat controversially traded in to move over to the American Veterinary Medical Association, where she's now Chief of Professional Development and Strategic Alliances. Alongside her day job, she has also served as the 2017 President for the American Association of Industry Veterinarians. And if all of that left you a little overwhelmed, then just know this. Mia is an amazing example of leadership done right, and she knows this industry, at least the North American bit of it, inside and out. Now, before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to drop a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the VetEx Graduate Community. If you're a practice owner and want to offer your new vets a greater level of support so they grow faster and stay longer with your practice, then jump onto my website, drdavenickel.com forward slash vetex grad and learn how we are enabling practices to recruit and retain talent by helping young vets across the world thrive in clinics just like yours. And with that said and done, let's get into the show. Mia is about as positive a person as you might meet, and despite her success, she remains a humble, fun person to spend time with. She is truly a cheerleader for our profession, and I challenge anyone to find a picture on social media where she is not grinning from ear to ear like the proverbial Cheshire cat. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to give you my interview with Mia Carey. So we're coming to you today's episode from... The, I was going to say wonderful, but I think probably gaudy, concrete jungle that is Las Vegas. I am joined by the awesome Dr. Mia Carey. Thank you. So good to be here. A big welcome to the podcast. And I'm going to wander around this room a little bit because I'm, and you can't see this, but I like to set the scene a little bit. And so beyond in a complete juxtaposition to the sort of concrete jungle of Las Vegas, the most amazing range of mountains, which is the Red Rock canyon national reserve which is rather gorgeous and helicopters flitting past the window so hopefully it won't be too noisy as we go on so mia welcome to the show thank you for joining us thank you so much and the sun is shining bright and beautiful does the sun ever not shine here yes it does yes when i arrived on saturday cloudy and gray cloudy and gray that's (laughs) 
Much like London. There we go. <laughs> or anywhere in the UK. We would love it to be cloudy and grey right now in the UK. It's just a frozen wasteland at the mm. minute. So I'm very glad to be here. And apologies to all of you back there. I hope you're all good. <laughs> now, Mia, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Mia is doing some really interesting things in this space. And as I think it's safe to, if I think of one word to describe you, may it be positivity and it's not just me like that's what people say when they talk about you it's like she's so positive and also she does amazing selfies she's always (laughs) grinning but they're not selfies see they're ussies u-s-i-e because a picture with more than one person in it that's the way to go there you go ussies i'm Mm -hmm. already educated so so an easy way and the way we usually start off the podcast is just by getting you to just jump backwards in your timeline and apologies i'll probably bounce all over the timeline a little bit in my usual haphazard way but just take us back into the, the dim and distant past when you were thinking about being a veterinarian like what was it that drew you into this profession what were your early influences and how did you pinball your way or was it a straight line shot you always (laughs) want to be a vet definitely not a straight line and it definitely I wasn't one of those that started I want to be a vet when I grow up I love animals and so I got to be a veterinarian although I always loved animals so that was part of the mix I actually knew I loved biology, sciences. That was my area of passion, but what I wanted to do with it, I really didn't have a clue until much later. And when I graduated from my undergraduate degree, it was actually with a pre-med degree. And the only one thing that I knew I did not want to do was be a human doctor. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) But that was my degree. (laughs) And I always wonder about human doctors. If humans had anal glands, whether anyone would be a human doctor. (laughs) Probably not. But then we're all vets and we have to deal with that as well, right? So So we're used to it. (laughs) So I knew I didn't want to go into that field, but I knew I loved medicine in general and sciences and animals. And when I graduated from my undergrad, I went back home, Carbondale, Illinois, and sat on my butt and literally didn't know what I was going to do next. And my mom, Tootie, who you'll hear often probably as our time progresses, Tootie said, well, go to the library, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and do some research and figure out what you want to do. And the next day, I came home and said, whales. I want to study whales. That's my thing. She's like, okay, great. Do go back to the library tomorrow, do some more research. Long story short, I found about 100 different organizations that had internships, sent a resume that had absolutely nothing on it, nothing on it. Paper girl, right? When I was in grade school, I worked at McDonald's. I worked at a herbarium when I was a junior in college, but had really nothing to do with the real world experience. But shut out all of these resumes, had one person call and say, you know what? You sound interesting. Thank you so much for reaching out. We have nothing available, but if you happen to ever be in the area, and this is Provincetown, Massachusetts, and I'm calling and, and so having not, a phone. not very you know? close Mm-mm. to Illinois at all. Not at all. If you happen to be in the area, stop by and we'll chat with you. Okay. So I hung up for that, thrilled to death that I had talked to a human being that wanted to have a conversation with me, hung up the phone, told Tootie all about it. And she's like, all right, well, better pack up. And now I am, right, fresh out of undergrad. And I, what are you talking about? What are we going to do? And she basically said, well, you obviously need to go meet this person. So again, long story short, she let me borrow her car because mine was a lemon Chevy Citation. I don't know if anyone remembers those, but trust me, it was a lemon. She let me borrow her car. I literally an hour later was in her Nissan Sentra and I drove from Carbondale, Illinois to Provincetown, Massachusetts at eight o'clock the next morning 
was at their doorstep. Dr. Phil Clapham knocking on his door all night, all how, night long. How far was that? How long the that drive? That was, it had to have been at least a 14 hour shot. Wow. Yeah. And you just- we'll have to look it up. I want to say somewhere between 12 and 14 hours. It was right a hall. Okay. And was on his doorstep the next day, knocked, Center for Coastal Studies. And he's, who the heck are you? Like, it's Mia at the time, Wesselman, my maiden name. We talked yesterday. You said if I was ever here to stop by. And we had a great conversation, and he had absolutely nothing available, as he had told me. What was the expression on his face when you rocked up in, on his doorstep? The expression is what you would see for someone that you think is a total creeper that has shown up <laughs> out of the blue, and you don't know what to do. <laughs> and maybe you're a little afraid. Just awkward and yes. fear. Yes. Awkwardness tinged with fear. Yes. And even before that was like, who are you? Who again? And then once I explained it, that's when the awkwardness set in. But then we had a great conversation. Okay. Yes. And so then that led to, I was driving back. So the next day I drew back to Illinois, right? Because he had nothing available. Still no job. No job, no nothing. But I was going to stop in Washington, D.C. Because that's where my sister lived. Yeah. Great. Stay there for free one night and then finish the rest of the ride. And he said, well, since you're going to be in D.C., I happen to know a guy which is a common theme, right? Networking, and that's such a big part of life. But I know a guy. He happens to be the curator of marine mammals at the Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian. Again, he's not hiring. He's not anything. But I'll put in a good word for you and just chat with him. So he put in a good word, go back to my sister's house the next day, Dr. James Mead, who is this curator, agreed to meet with me at the Smithsonian. And again, to not go too long with it all, we basically, he said, all right, I'll create a place for you. We called it a volunteer internship. Um, It was a three-month internship. I stayed there, lived with my sister, had a fantastic experience. It was all about marine mammals doing necropsies. Uh, We went out on the eastern seaboard if there was a stranding and took samples. And it was actually the first step that led to six years in marine mammals, which eventually led to a career in veterinary medicine. But to me, it was that very first step of when I graduated from my undergrad and Tootie saying, what do you want to do? Do a little homework, take the first step, and figure it out. Okay, so tell me more about Tutti. I mean, <sighs> clearly a massive influence in your yes, life. Yes, Based absolutely. on seven minutes and 40 seconds of <laughs> yes. conversation so far, this could be a long interview. <laughs> 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 Don't hang up just yet, guys. Exactly. But so, Tutti, a big influence on your life. Yes. Tell us more about Tutti. So she is my mother. She raised four children on her own. She actually got divorced about three or four months before I was born. I wasn't supposed to happen. Thankfully, I always thank her for that. And she raised four kids. She practiced as a registered nurse, went back to school, got a master's. And it was, okay, so this is her favorite mantra. Try is a four-letter word. And to her, four-letter word is a dirty word, like those words we can't say. So don't try, just do it. So her and Yoda and Nike all have that in common. Just do it. Just do it. And even to this day, she's 87 years old. She's in a nursing facility in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And when I go visit her, which I try to do once a month, I'll tell her stories. She'll engage with me. And if I use that word try, she'll give me this look, which I know you guys can't see, but it's the look you would imagine like, don't try, just do it. Just do it. So that's And it was all about taking risk and just giving things a chance, but it was also a very loving, supporting environment. My number one fan is Tootie. And so knowing that you have that helped me to take some of those risks. Oh boy. Now what, what happened with Tootie when you took a risk and it didn't work out? 
which did happen quite a bit. Sure. She was a trooper. She was, it's funny, my siblings, if they're ever listening to this, will laugh, but she was consistent in some way in that I always knew that she could be there for me. However, for example, you know, she was a nurse. She worked nights. She didn't get a lot of sleep. I remember sitting at the table and, you know, that saying, don't cry over spilled milk. Well, I remember dropping the milk and my brother and I look at each other and she flipped out and freaked out. She was exhausted, had no sleep. So in some ways there wasn't that continuity, but there was that no matter what happened, whatever mistakes I made, no matter what wrong path I went down, it was a safe place to come back to and I could regroup and and move forward. You knew she had your back. I did. Exactly. That's amazing. So this is something that comes up in conversations I'm having with practice owners Mm -hmm. and not just in veterinary medicine, but just anywhere, is the general, in the workforce today, this yes. is talking about, with our millennials or mm-hmm. snowflakes as they're being branded mm-hmm. for right or for wrong, the style of parenting that you have just described sounds well, possibly like it's quite unique even then. To it sounds mm-hmm. like an amazing woman to raise four children on her own, working night shift as a nurse. What an incredible inspiration and, and source of strength. Yeah. Are you seeing a generational shift in your teams or with the people you're engaging with in the way that the youth of today are being parented and how that is having an impact on the workforce or the way that they're working or their, you know, we hear about resilience being a challenge, burnout being a challenge. And, you know, I hear of vets, owners of practices pulling their hair out left, right and center over, you know, their perception is they're asking people to do less and less and they're they're getting more and more pushback even though they're not working after hours as long or long hours or you know they're they're not under the the same perceived sort of cognitive load and I'm not sure if I agree with that I have to say but in terms of having to do surgery having to do everything you know it's just so much more fragmented now what's your take on this generational divide that seems to be getting exposed right now so I think there are a couple different trends in terms of how the parenting aspect is impacting that. The one I'm most excited about is the strength. And they, I actually think the generation that is coming up now, they've got it together and they have their priorities right. And if they want to you know, work fewer hours or work more hours or demand some time at home, get more engaged with telehealth because then it allow them to work remotely. Whatever that looks like, they're doing it because their priorities, I think, are better maybe than our priorities were in the past. It's focused on their family or or having a something that's a greater good to them, whatever that means to them, and they're fighting for it. I think it's beautiful. I actually think the practice models need to change to adapt to that. And there is so much fear of the unknown within our profession. And I think that's one area that if we could take those as fantastic opportunities to evolve, then everybody wins. So I say hoorah to that generation. And I've got nieces and children in that generation and to keep doing it because it's the right thing. Fight for what they believe in. And if it's a unique set of working hours or even working space, it can happen. But again, everybody needs to evolve with it. Do you think we're in a stage of transition now in that case where this isn't the future forever? This is just 
generational change, yes. which actually has been going on forever. Well, but it is. It, it's not going to point A to point B. It's evolution. It's happening faster because yeah. of technology, because of communication. Yes. But again, so for me, for the, the veterinary professions that are out listening to this, whether they're technicians, practice managers, veterinarians, it's that ability to be excited about the change and the evolution and how could we do things differently versus fear it. And that's the piece where I think the generation that's coming up, they, they're living it. So they're already okay with it, but the rest of us could actually learn a lot from them. I think it's a really interesting perspective on it. And it's it's just moving that thought one notch forward to going, okay, there's the problem. Well, let's just pivot around it slightly and view it as not necessarily a problem, but like as a as a motivator of change. Otherwise known as, um, it's, maybe it's evolution. I just want to segue sideways into mm-hmm. something a bit more use the word disruption there. And I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the innovation work that you've been involved in in the profession. I think that's a very interesting thing for us to talk about. But I had a a question, a somewhat more whimsical maybe question than that. My question was, what are they putting in the water at the University of Florida? Go Gators! Right, because Mia Carey, Andy Rourke, Mary Gardner, Danny McVitie, I'm sure there's many more I've not listed there, right? That's an impressive cluster of people disrupting the traditional veterinary marketplace. So why are so many successful people coming from that school at the minute? What are they doing wrong and what are they doing differently there? <laughs> right. And I'm going to ask the question because I've, I've got the Dean of the Vet School has agreed to come on the show because oh, I'm fascinated excellent. by it. There's things Dean I'm hearing. Lloyd. Dean Lloyd. Ow, in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so Dean Lloyd has very generously agreed to come on excellent. the show. And, and so I'll ask him some of those questions as well. But what's your take? Like what's happening there? So I, there are great things happening at University of Florida. There's no doubt about it. And it's the, the faculty that's there. It's Jim's leadership. I think it started before Jim. I think it's already been a common theme of trying things new, different, innovative in terms of how they're teaching. I think, though, that's maybe not the reason why. So all those names that you just mentioned right there, maybe they learned some of it in school, maybe they didn't. But I think it's really taking advantage of all that we have in terms of technology. They're out there. They embrace social media. They have fun with it. They're not so serious about it. It's not so structured that... People are afraid of it, and you see that, and that's why folks aren't doing it. And again, I don't know that that came from Gainesville. I think it came from those individuals and their DNA. But I love University of Florida, and it's a fantastic vet school. But I think the common theme there is more about their personality than that they're gators. Right, and and they're not having it trained out of them, right? (laughs) Right, right. And they are are all very impressive people in their own right. Yes, agreed. So one of the questions that I get asked, or I ask for people to recommend people to come on the show, and your name came up a lot. And so, and then on my research and my sort of creepy stalker, you know, get, get to know your guests before they come on the show. Like me on the doorstep, still <laughs> clap them back in Provincetown. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Not quite that creepy. <laughs> but one of the questions that people ask and have of you is in your relatively recent move from the work you were doing with NAVC, so North American Venture mm-hmm. Community. Community or conference? The conference community. is now VMX, and so Correct. it's community, right? It is, absolutely. The C's for community. Okay. And then, and so you moved from that role into working with the AVMA, American Veterinary Medical Association. Mm-hmm. And that was viewed in some quarters as, was that a forward step or what was the decision making there? People were very curious mm-hmm. about that move. Right. So rather than speculate on that, let's hand the mic to you and let you answer the question. Thank you. Great question. And it was such a out of the blue, exciting opportunity for me. Um, and I have been an AVMA member. This is actually my 20th year. 
I was SCABMA rep all four years at Gainesville. So yep. I've always known of the AVMA and I've always considered AVMA to be the parental, if you will, organization for the profession, but it wasn't always relevant to me. Um, and I didn't actively think, oh, it's not relevant to me, but yet it just wasn't at the forefront, but always a big supporter. Yep. What I had been seeing over the last several years is evolution, change already happening within the AVMA. And so through various conversations and talking to board members, members, allied groups, and I was at the a year ago president of the industry vet group, and we're an yeah. allied organization. So yes. I had a lot of interactions within AVMA, and I saw this change that was already happening. It was the board that's been in place. Janet Donlin is the new CEO. And it just happened as a conversation and an extension of an offer to be a part of that. Right. And it was already happening. Some people... What change were you seeing already happening? Because our industry be, bodies are always be up for being, you know, it's a looking change to the future, resistant Looking to the future. And even just a change in terms of diversity and walking the talk, right? Yeah. So it's not all old white guys, right? I mean, let's just say it is what it is. And that's the perception is how yeah. can you represent me as a member of this profession when you don't look like me, talk like me, even have my perceptions. Right. And I don't think that we have to physically look like each other to represent ourselves, but you've got to be able to imagine yourself in that space right. in order to put yourself there. Absolutely. So I was seeing a change in that, but it was, it was much more than that. It was more of people asking questions and wanting to try out things and taking a little risk. And anyone that I would talk to, and these were board members that were 60 years old and had white hair, but they were still saying, you know what, we, we want to do things that we've never done before. We want to try new things. And that got me excited. And so to be able to be part of that and to help lead that, that excited me. And so that's why I made the change is not that I was running away from anything. I love NABC. I love the people there. I love um, their passion. I was excited about having an impact broader on the profession, which I thought AVMA one was already doing and I wanted to be a part of. And so what work, tell us more about the work you are doing just now there. Okay. So there's two focus areas. One is professional development, and that's really all things education. So yeah. whether it's toolkits, the education we have at convention, trying to build off of the already great things that they're doing, create some synergy. They have so many different departments that are doing excellent work, um, animal welfare, b business continuity. But my role didn't really exist to help bring it all together. Yeah. So that's part of it. And then the other part is strategic alliances. And that's a big part of what I've done in the past in terms of collaboration, finding ways that people and groups can work together for the greater good. And that's a huge part of what I'm doing as well. Are you part of that? I've noticed um, just this year with the conferences, there's something going on different. There's more collaboration happening across you with VMX and AVMA and Fetch, all starting to team up and, and come together. Have you you got a handle in that? Are you part of the, the movement and the, the shaking that's happening so I, there? So I'm definitely part of the movement. I'm not the movement, and there's a lot of people involved with it. But actually, my title at NABC, I had a couple different titles, but I was Chief Collaboration Officer, Chief Innovation Officer. And so that was all part of finding ways to collaborate. And my current title at AVMA, there's a piece of it, is Strategic Alliances. And it's that same thing. How can we work together? And it's part of the sharing economy, right? It's, it's where we should already be anyway, but it's helping to get there faster. Okay. Now, you are one of the, the reasons I was super excited to have you on the show is you've been in lots of different sectors of the profession, mm -hmm. starting out uh, what a year in general practice at mm -hmm. the start, and then moving into the pharma and then more into the the right way, but the political, I suppose, side mm -hmm. of things. With Our the, associations. Associations, which is, right. To me, that was always a big difference from the corporate world versus right. the association. Right. Mm -hmm. So a very good global view. 
of the industry. So I thought what might be quite good fun would be to do a little SWOT analysis on the profession. <laughs> okay. I have no idea what the SWOT analysis is out there, then it's something you do in marketing to assess the sort of landscape that you're operating in and your businesses or organizational's fitness for purpose in a nutshell. And so SWOT stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So and you can take this wherever you want to go. Mm-hmm. Let's do the SWOT analysis. So okay. what the, and this is veterinary medicine. Okay, veterinary so medicine nice as a picture. whole. Okay. Yeah. So what are the strengths that we have? What are the weaknesses we have? What are the opportunities that are going to shape our direction in the next five to 10 years? And what are the threats that we really need to get a handle on now? Otherwise, we're not going to have a great future. Right. So I think if we... If we think of it in terms of a true SWAT, we would have the strengths and weaknesses be internal and the opportunities and threats be external, which is kind of weird for me when we're talking about a profession, right. not a business. So you help me if I get the internal and external off. Let's use a framework. Framework? Okay, good. Yeah. So for strengths, to me, it is uh, the human-animal bond. We've got that going for us and we all love it and we believe in it. And so That's just- why we show up. Exactly. <laughs> having that the core of what we do is probably our biggest strength. Also just the people. I mean, the people that are already in the space- at Novartis, I spent some time in global training, and so I would work on the the pharma side. And anytime we would do something jointly between the animal health and the human side, everyone on the human side, please, can we come work? <laughs> your your customer sounds so much more fun and approachable and real. And so that's really authentic within our profession. So yes. I think those are the big biggest strengths. Okay, awesome. Weaknesses. Weaknesses to me is some habits that we have that we are a little bit risk aversive. There's the fear of the unknown. We've always done things the way we've done it. And I know I'm grossly generalizing here and it's not every veterinarian and it's different generationally, but in general, we tend to be slow at adapting to change. Okay. That moves us nicely into then... And we, with that, we could have a whole separate conversation about change. <laughs> yes. like, let's sidebar that for a yes. second because I think we could talk yes. about a whole lot of stuff here. What are the opportunities? Because I know this really is the thing I'm super interested in from you because the work with the Veterinary Innovation Council, mm-hmm. I think you've been working in an area that we all need to be a lot more aware of. So what are, and I'm not intending this to be a leading question, but I feel like, I feel like you're going to have some illuminating things to say here. No pressure there. No pressure. <laughs> Should just to shut up, you know. <laughs> Back to question school. <laughs> so, what are the opportunities that you see that are going to, if we get them, what are, or what are the trends that are going to shape our next five to ten years? So, I think there are several. The biggest opportunity for our profession is to embrace um, practice models that we've never even thought of. So, to me, it's you know some of them are already happening across the U.S. I think not being so fearful of what's happening in the areas such as shelter medicine, really understanding the access to care issues and being able to expand on those. You know, creating offerings for our clients that aren't cookie cutter. Yep. So it's customization, individualization, all of that. But in a nutshell, it's just really the amount and variety of practice models that we could expand to as we again evolve. Okay, two questions come out of that. Yes. One of them's huge. Okay. I'll go with the not so huge one first okay. of all. So the cookie cutter, mm-hmm. the rise of corporate medicine mm-hmm. is very much a cookie cutter model of medicine. Mm-hmm. And if we look at the internet or the evolution of mm-hmm. the way we market to mm-hmm. our customers, uh, industrial age, it was broadcast, broadcast, broadcast. Right. And as the internet's come on, it's now, or even pre-industrial, it was one-to-one barter economy or sales economy, very intimate and local internet age now it's mass customization right that's possible now 
what you've just described is sounds like to me and please push back i will no not um, to worry <laughs> <laughs> i thought you would <laughs> boutique practice can <laughs> offer individualization but boutique practice is under great threat at the minute if you look at right, the because of column, the lack of buying power lack of buying power maybe lack of belief so that's really interesting because and i have an email here from a graduate vet who's overseas she's not in the u.s but she's a new graduate and so we're talking about this cookie cutter bringing graduates into a cookie cutter model so i've gone corporate and feeling a bit like i sold my soul and she talks about having hard transition being a new graduate being thrown in the deep end with no helping and she wants to and here's the pertinent point i want to be a practice owner one day and be a f- strong female leader in the veterinary industry but i have doubts about if that is achievable due to the increasing corporate takeover, should I be having ambitions of practice ownership if my generation of vets aren't going to be able to do that in the future? Yes, yes, have those ambitions. So did you want to keep on your question? Well, the yeah. question then was, so your, your point was, you know, access to funding. This is an internal belief right. that people are coming out of college with that, they cannot compete with corporates. That world's right. disappearing. Now, to your point of wanting to do, to create a customized experience, an innovative customized experience, we're heading in different directions there. So so I think there's a lot of layers there, right? There's a lot of layers there. I think part of it is how we're educating and training. And there's so many issues that we know about, whether it's the well-being, where it's the debt load that these folks are being faced with when they graduate. So all of these things are real and we've got to get a handle on them. What I feel strongly about is that there is room for all the different models. And so there is absolutely room for the corporate and they do great things. The individual independent veterinarian, there is room for that and needed. And there are great things that they can do. And it's not just about being the boutique, having the customized service. It is about being smart and using technology. And at the end of the day, it's about figuring out what our pet owners want and delivering on that. And some of them do want something that a corporate practice could provide provide. Some of them don't. They want to have something that's the really intimate one-on-one with their veterinarian that they see day in and out. We see a demand for telehealth increasing. We've got to get prepared for that. But to this individual that wrote the email, I would say, yes, have that ambition. And that's the key to it all, right? Is the self-awareness to know what is going to make you tick and thrive and then go down that path. And for everyone with a veterinary degree or in this space, it's going to look a little bit differently, but that's the beauty of this profession. There's so many different options in terms of what you can do. Amazing diversity with a veterinary degree for sure. So I want to move on to the question of innovation then. Okay. Your work with, and you got a a completely new role. You made Mm -hmm. a new role with NAVC and that was the head of veterinary innovation officer. Mm -hmm. How does one innovate in a change resistant, not change resistant, but just in a, a very comfortable conservative kind of industry. Now we're being buffeted by by the winds of change, right. technological advancement, left, right, and center. Do you have a framework or a model for innovation that practices could apply to be able to help adapt and move so, forward? So there is a model. It's certainly not my model, um, and it won't be new to a lot of our listeners out there, but it's that idea of just starting small and then scaling with success and just giving it a shot. 
And I really think it's that simple. And also the other piece of that is finding other people that are doing the things that you want to do or that have the mindset of innovation and taking risk and trying out new things. And as an example of that, we already mentioned uh, Jim Lloyd. So Dean Eleanor Green, and these are two individuals that are uh, board members of the Veterinary Innovation Council. So it is surrounding yourselves with those that have that mindset. But I think even more important than that is that idea of starting small, testing things out, taking a little bit of risk. And then when you find a path that works for you, then start to scale. Don't start with the big project and then learn that it doesn't work and then have invested so many resources that you can't move forward. Fail small. Yeah. Have you got any favorite instances or examples of that process and action from your work? Not necessarily in practice, but where you've innovated and you've put that process through to illustrate the point? So let me think of a specific one to share with this, not in recent history, but starting a training model. And I think I'd already mentioned Novartis, but it was something that we wanted to, my task was to launch something nationally, actually globally, a training platform. And that was literally start there. And my take was, maybe let's not do that. Let's do some pilots in actually one state within the U.S., start there, learn what worked and what didn't. And thankfully we did because several of the models we put out there were horrible and we didn't go that route. So by the time we went to the global meeting to launch it to all the different OPUs, we had a model that was really tried and tested and people were excited about. And there's still, you know, there's still going to be times that it doesn't work or there's places of failure. But that to me, that's also the mindset of being okay with that and learning from it versus it freaking you out. Okay. Awesome. So moving on from, actually, one thing I wanted to ask you, and we, we didn't finish off the threats. Oh, that's what right. We threats? didn't get to we've our done, wait, Yeah. No, we've got to do threats. Yes. So what are the things we've got to keep an eye on that are coming the, our way? So the threats to the veterinary profession, I would say staying stagnant, doing what we've done in the past. The threats are not listening to our pet owners in terms of they, you know, if if they want to order their pet food online and have it delivered to the house, well, let's figure out a way that we can make that happen and not be a barrier to them. So I think I think the biggest threat is putting our head in the sand and acting like the world's not going to change around us. Okay. Now, before we move on to the next area of sort of exploration, I was just curious about your social media handle, ZenVet23. Yes. yes. And we'll plug this again at the end, but if anyone's interested in following me on Instagram, on Twitter, it's at ZenVet23. There's a quote in there, you go up Buddha quite a lot mm-hmm. and and a lot of your positivity is very, seems to reflect a, mm-hmm. a Buddhist philosophy, which I feel quite aligned with as well. So tell us about the spiritual side of Dr. Mia Carey. So my... You, we started off this conversation and you talked about my optimism. And I've always been an optimistic person, but it has always been based in reality. And I have had my challenges just like everyone else. I, even to this day, get these comments of, you know, oh, you're always so up. There's so much energy. But, you know, I have my down days too. And to me, it's that uh, approach to life that there's always an upside. So no matter how bad it is, I mean, I have sat in a funeral bawling before and truly being sad and needing to deal with that. But knowing the good that came out of it is that as soon as that funeral was over, I was going to get to meet with all my family members and have a fun afternoon. And immediately that was my thought. And so my default is to quickly think about whatever the situation is that maybe isn't so positive and upside, what can become of it that is good and focus on that and run with it. 
Is that something you had to cultivate? No. I, that was one that I, I have been born with that. Okay. Yeah. And I can actually remember when we very, so when we very first started, Jim Mead, the guy from the Museum of Natural History who hired me, I remember him about three months into that internship saying, you know, Mia, you've got a great attitude on life, but just know that when life continues to hit you with roadblocks and you start to get wiser when you age and more experiences happen, you're not going to be as resilient. And I just love it because I had dinner with them about two years ago when I went back to DC. And I was like, look, this is still me. He's like, you're, you did it. <laughs> but what's funny is he was that way himself already. Right. Um, now, you mentioned telemedicine yes. earlier. Yes. You published in March 2017 a letter um, to mm-hmm. ABMA mm-hmm. encouraging them to embrace telemedicine yes. and not to view it just as a threat. Yes. So one of the fascinations I have is in, you know, I've done a lot of work in the exam room and research in the exam room of exam room and care standards. And and one of the beliefs I've held to is that, you know, a good physical examination, a good history taking session is nine tenths of the way to a good pathway to walk. And telemedicine seems to be, a, that, that presents a challenge to somebody like me who, who trains people in the exam room technique to take a step out, you know, that physical contact, that nuance of being able to see the, the body language, all of the meta communication elements, which a lot harder when you're just having mm-hmm. a Zoom call with somebody. Absolutely. One of the reasons I love to do these interviews face-to-face is that there's a whole lot more dynamic happening, which you just don't get when it's a recorded interview over Skype. So tell us where telemedicine is at and tell us what's positive about it. Mm-hmm. Tell us what is um, a concern about it and how are we going to maintain our position as stewards of that right. animal welfare, you know, being at the center of that relationship between pets and animals. Absolutely. So to me, and it's one of the exciting things about AVMA is that they are embracing it and creating a resource center and toolkits and case studies because, and I, I'm very philosophically aligned at this point with the AVMA, and it's just my belief system, yep. which is there's a place for it. It's an extension of a veterinary practice. It's not going to replace it. And it allows a veterinarian to practice medicine in new and different ways. But absolutely, that face-to-face in-person interaction is still critical and always will be. There are going to be times and places when it is okay to have the video chat. It is okay to send in a picture. And in fact, it's already happening across the board in every practice, right? Yep. The emails, I was texting in a picture. Absolutely. And a lot of vets don't even realize they're already doing it. Yep. So what excites me the most about it is that um, it isn't going to be the end of veterinary medicine. It's actually going to, I think, enhance it. And there's already data out there to show those that are starting to engage with it, you're actually increasing client loyalty. They want to come in more than they did in the past. So I think as more data is created to support that, it's going to alleviate some of the concerns. But the reality is there's also a time and a place to not do it. And when you talk about what's the hard part, that's the hard part. So we need to empower and trust veterinarians to be able to make those decisions. But we also have to help train them so they know, ooh, I'm not... And to me, it's any time, at least, you know, at this point, if I'm not feeling good about it and I'm on the video chat, it's time for them to come in, right? Yeah, right. We need to use the skills that we are trained with as a veterinarian. So using it as a, a, a pre-consult, using it as a follow-up to see how treatment's progressing. I think as equipment and technology is sophisticated, this is 
Mia Carey's stance yep. is that we will be able to establish a VCPR through telemedicine. And we're not there now because one, we don't have the technology, and we don't vet, have the training. Veterinary centered patient relationship. A veterinary client-patient relationship. Got it. Okay. And we, they already do it on the human side. And they do it in pediatrics, right? Yep. So if they can do it with kids that don't talk, you know, it's similar models. We're not there yet. The most analogous relationship we have, I think, right. is pediatrics. Exactly. But see, this is where I so believe that the profession under the stewardship of the AVMA is in the right place because their stance is... Sure, that may come one day, but what can we do today? What can we do right now with telehealth so yep. that we can help the profession get comfortable with it, understand it, know when to use it, when to not, so that no matter what happens down the road with legislation, regulation, that the profession will be prepared and to pet owner demand, because that's the other piece. Right. right? And, and pet owner demand and innovation are always going to be a step ahead of the regulation. Yes. So what's the AVMA doing now to foster this? So a lot of it's getting collaboration. So yeah. having c- c- the conversations, doors wide open, sharing data, being very transparent with everything we're doing and being the um, host, if you will, of the conversations with all of these other organizations within yeah. the veterinary space and beyond, right? Because it's not, there's so much to learn from the human side yeah. too. Yeah. Do you have an estimate on how many practices are actually engaging with telemedicine at the hundred percent, if depending on your definition. Okay, so let's work on a definition. <laughs> yeah, no, fair point, fair point. But using, I'm thinking somebody who is purpose, not somebody who's, you know, like we all have a moment where we do the examination or the client phones up and says, hey, my, you know, the wounds opened up. And so it sends us a photo, let's have a look at that. Right. We all had those moments. Something where it's a first contact situation, client phones up, or gets in contact via mm-hmm. email or through website, and now there's an animal care need. That sort of that, that would be my criteria. Right. First contact. So, and I don't have a number for it, but it's definitely increasing. And yeah. there's organizations, some of them that have apps, some that it's a full platform right, right. that are doing more and more of it. So it's coming. If it's not in your neighborhood, it's coming. But again, the idea of getting ahead of it and understanding it so then you can incorporate it into your practice where it makes sense for you and your clients, that's the key to it. And yeah. there's so many different models even existing today. It could be simply you know, identifying one of your associates that into it and think it's cool to explore a little bit, You know, set up some video chats and interactions and grow from there. Or it could be utilizing one of the service providers that are out there and you know, taking some of that work off of your shoulders and letting them help. So many different models. Effectively, just doing the same thing over a Skype call really isn't that much of an innovation. It's There's no difference to a phone call. That's not the big leap, is it? It's the sensors, it's the kits, it's the arrays well, that you can place on. But I would it's the say, data tracking of well, that's you know, it. feeding, water, movement. All of that. All of that. And, then, and having that true digitally connected experience, yes. right? With the client, the patient, the veterinarian, and then all the support staff, the, the veterinary technicians or veterinary nurse, depending on yep. where you're at with that. So, yes, I think that piece is really important and it all ties on to being connected, right? So digitally connected, but still in the center of that is the relationship, right? right? So, and part of the time it's going to be in person. That's just the nature of the relationship. So I'm going to ask a a, a way more scary question now. (laughs) Do it. And so we have now got the technology and I'm future casting here. Okay. So nobody pass out at this. All right. (laughs) Especially not if you're just going to vet school, although maybe be a little bit concerned. (laughs) So we now have the technology to grow fetuses in bags, Mm -hmm. you know, work going on over here, Mm -hmm. human centers uh, with the really creepy lamb growing in a big bag. We have 
um, robots working remotely on field surgery in war zones, mm -hmm. controlled by surgeons sat on the other side of the world. We have regenerative medicine technology, mm -hmm. a lot of coalescing technology, still very expensive. Right. We know that artificial intelligence mm -hmm. is now outperforming doctors, MDs, in the diagnosis of skin cancers and the interpretation of thoracic films. Like we are a profession sitting on the edge of obsolescence in some ways it would look at in current yeah, format. But, you could, but so if you look at all of that, you could say that almost about every profession. And then if you look at the list of the go into these professions because they're less likely to have the robotics impact, you'll see sociology, you'll yeah. see certain ones listed. But the reality within almost every profession, it's finding, well, where is the human touch critical? Right. Where is human interaction critical? Whatever yes. that interaction could look like. And to me, within veterinary medicine, yes, there's going to be things that we can do using robotics, using wearables where we're collecting data, all of that. And again, it comes back with that attitude of embrace that, be excited about it, learn about it, and then figure out where your place is at, whether you're the veterinarian or the veterinary nurse, where is your place within that and build on those elements that won't be automated down the road. And they're there. Would you send your family? Yes, your children? I do. Would you advise them to go into the veterinary profession or medical professions now? And what would be your main rationale for doing that? What's getting you really positive about there's roles for us all here in 10, 15, 20 years time? So I would absolutely recommend it. And part of it is because I'm in it and I love it. I right. absolutely love it. I have such a I feel a rewarding profession that I'm honored to be a part of. And for me, it's all about, for each of us, finding our purpose, right? And what is that purpose? How are we contributing to the greater good? And I feel within veterinary medicine, and I'm sure it's the same for those in human medicine, even though I didn't go down that route and didn't want to initially. And the reason is, is that in itself, it's not going away. It's important. It's necessary. And again, it comes back to one of the things we first talked about, the human-animal bond. And for me, that is a driver, knowing the benefits of that relationship and even then, so we went to CES and you could see the robotic dogs and the pets and they're cute and they're funny, but they're a toy. And you that's know? a consumer electronics show, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Yep. Here in Vegas, yep. actually. Yep. Yep. But again, I've seen articles where those are going to replace pets. And so therefore, vets are obsolete. I wrote an article. Did you? About this. What and was, it was, your, a tongue -in -cheek. What was your take? It was a complete tongue-in-cheek article. Yeah. And I wrote it about seven or eight years ago on my blog. And it was NASA develops space dog. Our first intelligent space dog was designed. And basically, I was just poking fun saying, like, we're all going to be Tamagotchi. Remember Tamagotchis? Like the yes, Japanese, all the, yes. to feed them yes, and water them. Exactly. And that was the pet. And that was a massive craze. Right. So the, to develop the animal that doesn't poop, right. that gives you the love, and then suddenly we're all mechanics. Yes. Like, so there's, you know, there's technological change on both sides. Like, yes. just like... It's an interesting thing. It was it was a slight tongue in cheek, right? It was a completely tongue in cheek article, <laughs> but with a you know a slight mm, yeah, you know, keep an eye on that kind of thing. Absolutely. Well, there. that's the whole AI and right. that whole movement. And and again, it's interesting depending on what your stance is in terms of futurism, yeah. right? Where that's going to go? What does it mean? You could panic and be paranoid, and you know, want it be doomsday about it, or it's well, how are we going to benefit because of it? Yeah. What is the good it's going to do? And you know, a lot of those discussions actually happen now on a regular basis. We're a super cerebrally focused profession at the minute. In yes. some ways, I think to the detriment of the relationship with right. people, 
And in an increasingly technologically advanced society, right. it's going to be the human touch points. Yes. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I thank God for films like Terminator right. and The Matrix <laughs> right. and those creepy ass show, like videos coming out of Boston Dynamics yes. to those creepy animals. And, and although I had a conversation with somebody and you know they were whacking the robot with a stick mm-hmm. and people were feeling bad about the robot. Oh, yeah. Like, Absolutely. That's, that's weakness right there. <laughs> exactly. Like the robots are coming. <laughs> okay. Now, as you move through your career, and actually I'm going to quote, you posted a, a really nice quote on your Instagram feed. And it was, every experience, no matter how bad it seems, holds with it a blessing of some kind. The goal is to find it. And that was a quote from Buddha. So my question is, do you have a favorite failure or toe curling cringe moment that helped you to grow? So I have many, as I'm sure we all do. But as you're saying this, one does come to mind and it was so embarrassing, but I'll share it with you. (laughs) So this was probably three months post-graduation as a veterinarian, small veterinarian in Millhopper Veterinary Clinic in Gainesville, Florida. Was so excited to be out there and actually practicing on my own. And one of the things I felt about myself at the time was that I was an excellent communicator. Excellent. And I had been a technician for five years. So I had seen that veterinary medicine through all different aspects. And I was the technician that the clients always came to because they didn't understand what the veterinarian said. So all through vet school, I worked as a technician. So I I was very confident in my communication skills. So... This is just so bad. But this is true. You're not going to think it's true. So long story short, client has a dog. I don't even remember what kind of dermatology, but it was a skin condition. And the dog and the client went home with cephalexin. And I had gone through the instructions, how many to give. I think it was 200, 500 megs twice a day. And they came back six days later complaining that, you know, nothing was getting better and it, and it was no problem. We understand it can take a while. It's, you know, went through the whole thing. And the client said, well, Dr. Wesselman at the time, you know, you said to use a meatball sometimes because if, if my dog doesn't eat a lot and, you know, it just, it doesn't seem to be working. I'm like, oh, well, you know, you, there's a lot of different things they can use. It's just a matter of getting it down in the system. And they said, well, you know, we put the meatball on there, we stick it in, but it just pops back out and we need a better solution. And so I said, well, why don't you go ahead and show me how you're doing it? And yes, they thought the cephalexin was a suppository (laughs) and they were putting it in a meatball and inserting it as a suppository. And so clearly I failed to mention which end to put in the cephalexin in the meatball. And so it was... It was horrific. I mean, I can, I'm put, I'm back in the exam room right now. I can feel it. I was dripping with sweat. And part of it was, I mean, it was the humility. It was wonderful because I really did think I was an excellent communicator. And it, and I have thought about that because you, one, you never know perception is reality right. and sharpen the saw. You always have things to learn, but I just, I, yeah. So that's one right there. <laughs> That brings a whole new dimension to human-animal bond. Yes, it does. That poor pet, right? Poor Charlie. I'm sorry, Charlie. <laughs> still take that. Oh. And how did you grow from that? I mean, other than using it as an after-dinner speaking uh, story. Oh, it was it, definitely growth in terms of taking up the notch on communication. And we we actually had a meeting after that where we talked with the technicians and tried to get on the same page and what we were communicating, how we were communicating, because we did learn from it, thankfully. And it's still, and I just remember 
so often after that event within that crew. Of course, they never let me forget it. It came up again and again. But it was a great example of, hey, we may be thinking this is what we're saying, but let's check ourselves. Let's find multiple ways to say, you know, all the communications skills that we talk about in training. Yes. So, yes, it it definitely was a learning moment. It was hilarious. I was mortified. But it, it, uh, we all grew because of it. Everyone that I shared it with, you know, we grew. <laughs> I know. I'm cringing right now. It was so wrong. You're I can having see that a visceral response to that story. So oh. I'm grateful for you sharing it. Now, in one of our earlier podcasts, one of the, the great, I think, uh, privileges, I think, of, of being able to have so many amazing meetings and interviews with people, you're going to meet some really fantastically cool, successful people. And I'm thinking back now to my interview with Kim Therian and mm-hmm. uh, Karen Bradley. Mm-hmm. And I'm also thinking about one of the, you know, the questions that keep coming up again and again, like I mentor a lot of new graduates. And this one comes up again and again and again. And Kim comes up in the, the email I was quoting from earlier, oh, the impos- okay. imposter syndrome. Yes. And so do you suffer with this imposter syndrome thought process and if so, how do you manage that? Or what are your views on it? Is it good? Is it bad? Tell us about your personal experience. Okay. So I definitely think it's real. There's some that would say that it's not real. I definitely think it's real. I have experienced it myself. And I still do to this day intermittently. And at work, I work with amazing human beings. They are brilliant. If you guys don't know Dr. Gail Golab, you should check her out. She's our chief veterinary officer. I mean, She's amazing. And it's true of everyone that I surround myself with at work and in this great profession. So there are opportunities on a routine basis where I'm sitting in a group of in the boardroom with these folks having conversations thinking, what am I doing here? How was I invited to this party? And so, yes, that happens. But for me, again, it comes back to we're all human beings Mm. and it doesn't happen as often now as it used to because with age comes wisdom and experiences for me right, is a big right. one is no matter what you say and how bad your flub, the next moment's going to continue and you're going to be fine. So part of it is just going through life and having experiences. But for me, knowing that we're all human, you know, we all get up in the morning, put up our pants, we'll let a fart out. It just happens, right? We're all humans. It just happens. And so for me, that's was when I, that really hit home with me. And when I finally, that sunk in to be true, then the imposter syndrome happens less and less for me. And even now, um, those people like, so Gail, who's this idol, and she doesn't even remember, you know, 12 years ago, I invited her into the industry vet group to speak. And I was so excited when she returned my email, right? And she laughs about that now. She's one of your veterinary heroes. Yes, exactly. So I think part of it is, is we're all human and we don't have to all know everything and that's okay. And we're going to make mistakes. And, and I know it's, we all say it and it sounds so old, but it's true. The best learning opportunities happen when we do make mistakes. So if you're not having any, you're doing things wrong. So yes, I've experienced it. I much less now because when it does come up, I'm quickly able to say, hey, we're all just a bunch of human beings doing our best. You've catch yourself in the act. That's oh, yes. a self-awareness it thing. Is, of- well, and self-awareness is the key. You know, we talk about emotional intelligence, yes. you know, all of this area of our lives that are so important. And self-awareness to me is the one of the biggest elements within that. Because again, you know, who are you? Who are you? What are your strengths? What are your areas of opportunity or weaknesses? It's okay to say weaknesses. <laughs> and, you know, know that about yourself and play to your strengths and bless the diversity that is the human race. As a, a lady who's had a, 
you know, a, a great career and is having a great career and also is having a family. How have you managed to balance those two things in order to be able to to do both and, and to be good at both? So I don't believe in work-life balance. I okay. think that is a false... Expand on that. It's work-life integration. Okay. And I know there's a lot of different terminologies out there, but I really think realizing that, you know, very few of us work eight to five or nine to five. And there is, I would encourage everyone actually to check this out, imperative.com, purpose leadership. And it really talks about the ways that our current work environment is so different than historic work environments and that it's okay to go out for a beer with your colleagues and that, you know, the day doesn't end at a certain time. Now, you still need to know when to disengage. You need to know when to turn off the work and just focus on pure pleasure with your family. But it's all integrated and it's not a nine to five kind of world. And that's okay. Okay. How do you go about turning off? That's a really strong point right. and something that people struggle with. So how do you turn off? So it took me a while to figure it out. And my, if John is listening to this, he's going to be like, you're still figuring it out, Mia. I hear you. <laughs> but knowing that each of us have our own way to go about it. And I just had this conversation with a colleague um, this week. So some of us, when we go on vacation, turn it all off. No phone, no email, no nothing. If that works for you, fantastic. For me, I check in every day. And part of it is because I don't want anyone waiting on me for anything. And I don't want to build up email inbox that's 600 you know, high because I didn't check it. That works for me. So when I'm on vacation, I check in and I know nothing's building up and I know no one is waiting on me. It doesn't mean that I think that time will stand still if I'm not there. I get it. I get that I'm just a piece in this all. But for me, that works. And I think that's the most important part is if you don't have the skill sets or the tools is to seek them, you know, find out people that do feel like or seem like they have that balanced, integrated life and learn from them. Yep. There's tools, there's resources. I've got some great Todoist. If you don't know Todoist, check it out. It's how I do my task list. So find out the tools that work for you and then be okay with flipping that switch and truly disengaging. And in terms of how, you know, a tipping point for me, I really believe in the 360 evaluations. And some folks think it's only if you do something wrong, you get one and it's something to fix. Yeah. But the 360 evaluations, if you can do them annually with yourselves and your teams, you learn truly, you know, what the world around you, what those perceptions are. And for me, one of my very first ones, um, I think was at Behringer at this point, but it was a group of veterinarians that I led and my 360 came back all green, which was good in the 360 world and red, ugly, ugly red, which I couldn't believe because red means you're not doing something well. And I'm just like all of us vets out there, you know, I'm the type A and it was, I wasn't walking the talk on work-life balance was the terminology then, but it was a great eye-opener. And they said, you know, Mia, we are so glad you are our leader, but you aren't walking the talk. So how can we, you know, turn off things at night if you're not doing it? Mm -hmm. It was a great, great, great slap in the face of you got to walk the talk if you're going to say it and do it to, really the, to those around you. Yeah, absolutely. How, I'm thinking about ownership here. Mm -hmm. Did any of them make comments back to you to say, what can we do to help? Yes. Yes. And what well, was the eventuation of, of those conversations? So the biggest learning was comes back to communication because when I sent an email at night, I wasn't asking them to act upon it. 
I just didn't want them waiting for me in the morning. If they started right. their work day later than mine, I wanted them to have everything they needed so they could run. Was their perception, oh, I've oh, got yeah. emails and so I've got to respond Absolutely. To and so when I started with my new team on October 16th at AVMA, that was one of the first things I said, hey, you know, this is how I operate. Does that work for you? If I send you this at night, are you going to think you need to attack it or will you not even look at it? And so we had that conversation early on. You know, that was me learning, right? I wouldn't have known to have that conversation, even though that would have been my expectation right. previously. Interesting. And I do think, so you said something that is key and we haven't even talked about today is personal accountability. To me, you know, at the end of the day, old, old book, QBQ, John Miller, do you remember it? It's so old. It's like, I think from the seventies, but it's so good because it's all about in any situation, you know, yes, other people could change or do different things, but at the end of the day, what can you do to improve it? And if you approach life and challenges not only realizing that there's always an upside, but really trying to think about how you can impact it. Boy, that's freeing too and self-empowering. Fred Kaufman or Kaufman, Conscious Business. Yes. My Leadership Bible. Yeah. Love yes. that book. And that was one of the core principles was just accountability. Yes. And then more recently, you've got people like the Jocko Willink, the SEALs team guy, right. wrote a book called Extreme Accountability, yes. Extreme Ownership. Yes. And just like, what more can I do? Like, what is my part? In well, this? it's so freeing too, because it's easy to fall in that trap of, oh, poor me, everybody's, you know, doing X, Y, or Z. But, it, and even that may be true, you know, people may be doing things that are not infected and they're having a negative impact, yeah. but you can't control them. You can control you, yourself, your actions, and how freeing that is when you finally realize that. Enormously freeing. Yes. Okay, so I'm always conscious of your time, so I'm going to move us into the more rapid okay. fire, okay. short form yes. questions. Now, they're short questions. You can answer them however you okay. like. And seriously, I think we've gotten through like a third of the stuff I was going to ask you okay. about. So, All right, so what would you change... More than anything else in veterinary medicine, if you could change one thing in veterinary medicine, what would it be? Oof. Change one thing in veterinary medicine. I would change the default that a majority of our colleagues have, which is the fear of the unknown. And uh, what was the, I love this one, what was the best piece of advice you've ever given or received? Best piece of advice. And you could do both if you like. Well, I already told you, it's my tootieism. Don't try, just do it. Don't try. And I loved your connecting that to Yoda, by the way. And what Nike. Did you, and Nike. Right? <laughs> they got it from Tootie. <laughs> <laughs> so that definitely for me is that I've ever been given in terms of what I've given to others. I think it's the, and I share it frequently, is that always the upside that we've already talked about, that no matter what the situation is, there is an upside figure out what it is and move things forward so that you don't fall yourself into a victim trap or a trap of immobility. Yeah. And what was the worst piece of advice you've ever given or received? The worst piece of advice that I received was from my father. And it was when I was very young, trying to figure out what I wanted to do career-wise. And literally, well, the only two career options that are available to you are teacher and secretary, which are both fantastic career paths. But at the time, those were the only two available to me because I was a girl. Yeah. So you read about that, but did I have a father tell you that? That's kind of, that was tough. Yeah. Awesome. And I love teachers and administrative assistants. So those are awesome fields. No, absolutely. And my, you know, my mother's a teacher. Many yes. of my family are teachers. 
echo that completely. So your person, I sense, reads a lot and mm-hmm. is a sponge for information. Is there a book that's been more impactful on your life or your thinking, you know, overall? Or is there a recent book that you've really has had a wow impact that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, you know, what I'm listening to now... I love to read. I love, love, love. I actually have an audiobook going. I still do hard copies, but I find that I read, quote unquote, the most is audiobooks when I'm running because that's what I try to get into every day so I have the time for it. And so the, the what I'm currently listening to is not a new book, but I'm loving it. And it's the Exponential Organizations. I think it's been out probably three or four years. But what I love about it and why it's so invigorating right now is that it reinforces my current mindset. One of the things at AVMA that I'm working with the rest of the group is to become more nimble and to, you know, become more fluid and, you know, how can we have less hierarchy and more just get stuff done? And the book is all about that. So it's not new and novel concepts, but it is very reaffirming in terms of that's the right path. Have you made any decisions or instigated any habits or changes in your life that have been very beneficial or what's the most impactful change you've made over the last 12 months? Ooh, last 12 months. Well, I will tell you, you didn't you ask, could, you but know. I can answer any way I want. So I will tell you, though, before the last 12 months is finding a um, exercise regime that works for me. So I was always an evening worker outer my whole life. But coming into industry, knowing that, you know, there's dinner meetings, there's things in the evening. So I am now a morning person, which anyone that knows me now would be shocked to know that I wasn't that historically. But finding what works for you and modifying so that you can, you know, eat well, exercise, whatever that means to you. Changing that habit, which was a big change, has changed my life. And that's been probably 10 years ago. Over the last year, I don't know that I have a new one. That was a good one, the first one you gave. Yeah, that was life-changing for me. If you could give one piece of advice back to yourself at graduation, what would that piece of advice be? Is that you're stronger than you know. And so... One of the ways I define myself now is that I have confidence without ego, or some would say confidence without arrogance, and I really believe that. I am humble. I know I have lots of faults. I know I have things to learn from every single person I meet. I'm also very confident, and I'm okay with who I am, and my image, it's me. It's me. It's who I am, and I love me, and that's okay. And that's the other thing is that love is okay, and really being excited about yourself taking care of yourself so that you can take care of others. All of those things, you know, come together in terms of, boy, if I knew that when I had first gotten out, that would have mitigated that gap to where I finally had those strengths versus what I had when I graduated school. Connected to that, Mm -hmm. if you could send one tweet to the world and you got 280 characters now, right? Not 140. Exactly. What would the tweet say? And maybe not the whole world. You can choose the world or you can choose an audience, a specific audience. I'll let you so, riff on that. So a couple of uh, hashtags that I don't always use, but when I am kind of in the most me mindset, there's four that it just always automatically come out. And I don't plan it. I don't think it. But these four, and they're hashtags, so they're not the characters of a Twitter post. But it's, you know, do good, have fun, be kind, and kick arse. And to me, that defines what I want for myself, what I want for the world, because you can still be competitive and want the best and and fight for what you believe in. But by God, you can do it while you're being kind to those around you and having fun. You know, having fun is okay. In my first board meeting at AVMA, I told them that I wanted us to get edgy and I used the word friggin and they were fine with it. You know, it's okay. Just be yourself and know that it's okay. I was specifically told I was not allowed to use any cuss words at VMX 
in order to be able to speak next Are year. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> my reputation. Oh, got I have to tell you me. a story on that. It's really quick. Can I tell you? Yeah, please. My brother speaks for a living. You can take as long as you want. Okay. My brother speaks for a living. And at one of it was his audience were the um, cafeteria workers of the United States. They have an association. Who knew? Who That's knew? so cool. And so lunch ladies, right? I love the lunch ladies when I was in school. And I was the, the most important people to look after in, yes, in any organization, right? Exactly. Like, so I was like so excited to hear that he was going to give this presentation. And the organizers of the meeting said, okay, Paul, this is a very unique audience. And one of the, the tenets of this association is really cussing is really frowned upon. So, and my brother, like me, sometimes we let an F-bomb slip and it just is the nature of the beast. We don't, it's not a big deal. Although my mother used to brush our teeth with comment when we cussed growing up. So there, Tootie, if you're listening, that was a fail. But the rest of what you did was perfect. So Literally wash your mouth out. With, with comment. With, with. She's an RN, for goodness sake. But anyway, that's a whole other story. He, so he's telling me about this, that he's so excited, but he can't cuss at all. And so he's a little nervous about that. So that night after the presentation, he calls me. He's like, how'd you go? He's like, oh, they love me. It was great. He's like, well, I kind of flubbed up the opening. I said, what did you do? And he said he knew it was going to be top of mind that he couldn't cuss, couldn't cuss, couldn't cuss. So I'm getting ready to cuss, just so you know, Dave. But he went up on stage and literally, when they introduced him, Paul Wesselman come to the stage, he literally got up on the stage and said, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> Hi, I'm Paul Wesselman. I knew if I didn't say it now that I would later. And I've told you guys hate that. So I had to get it out of my system. I hope that's okay. And the administrators in the front row were mortified. The audience loved it. Oh, and it was probably God. his best presentation ever. So that, isn't that great? That is wonderful. <laughs> I have only one parallel story, and this is going to get me unbooked from every speaking oh, engagement in, us, in the future. Us. And I was speaking at Sydney University to the final year students, and I'd, I'd gotten booked, and, and I was to do a talk to, to final year students on digital marketing. I just published the Yellow Pages Are Dead book, and so they invited me to talk about that. Why final year students needed to know any of that stuff? I mean, they knew more about <laughs> social media than I did. Right, like, they're right. a decade younger and being generous to me, <laughs> not them. And so I'm up there, and then I do my thing, and I'm swearing a little bit right. in potty mouth. And, and so I, I think the, the guy who booked me, John Bagley, lovely, lovely man. Hi, John, if you're listening, thanks for booking me. And <laughs> bless you for bringing me back the second year. So his eyes were like, oh, is this in the university? You don't say oh. this. So then the students were rolling around right. like it was a Friday afternoon. Like right. I thought they've got to wake him up. And so that's what I did. Anyway, the next year, John introduced me. And so he's on the mic going, and so we've got a we've got a speaker for you today. You're going to enjoy this, but just if any of you do have, if you're you know easily offended and you know you don't like potty mouth, and he just left enough of a gap and in a heartbeat, I just grabbed my mic and went, "Just fuck off." Now. <laughs> And Love nobody it. did that and everyone sat up and everyone was very awake and attentive <laughs> for the remaining hour of that lecture. Awesome. It was one of the best lectures I ah, ever gave. I love it. So, Louise, if you're listening, I promise you, I will not do anything like that at VMX. No potty words will escape my mouth. You have my word. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, last oh, question then. Yes. What is the most controversial thing people don't know about you but matters? Oh, controversial. I'm such an open book. I am such an open book. Well, what everyone knows is, well, that's not controversial. I don't, honestly, I'm such an open book. I it's remember, all this out is going there. Out all around the world. So lots of people don't know who you are. So most of the audience is in the US, but lots of UK and Australian listeners 
<laughs> and you can't cop out and do like an Andy Rourke. What did he do? He did. He thought Stannis Baratheon was going to end up the king of the Seven Kingdoms and sit on the Iron Throne. That was his controversial. <laughs> Whatever, <thing>. Andy. <laughs> what you said. <laughs> um, controversial. What's yours? Maybe that will oh, help me. No. Come on. <gasps> come on, come on. Um, I, I shouldn't say this in my own podcast, it. actually. Do it's it, pretty do bad. It, do it. Um, I, the first ever stand-up comedy gig I did was also the, I slept rough that night <laughs> right before it. <laughs> Because I locked myself out of my house. Not because I'm actually a homeless oh uh, alcoholic, but I locked myself out of my house and I couldn't get in. And it was like zero oh. degrees. So oh. I had to sleep on the step until my wife got up in the morning. Nice. she sleeps heavy. Nice. And, and so I slept nearly freezing. <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> With almost no sleep. And then I had to go do my first ever stand-up comedy gig. Uh, How did it go? It went very well. I didn't get booed <laughs> off stage. <laughs> it was a room full of it was a very sympathetic audience though so it was a room full of other stand-up comedy wannabes and families so it would have been really bad to get booed off that stage yes that would have been bad indeed. terminal for one's comedy career <laughs> that and not being funny is <laughs> yeah, damaging that done to it. a comedy career it's just as well i'm a podcaster and veterinary surgeon i think yes so, indeed wait that was the worst that was an even worse cop out than andy so okay it's not controversial but it's so during. Well, in, well, mine wasn't controversial, just embarrassing. Right. So, well, I have an embarrassing. Okay, well, let me. T- I'll tell you an embarrassing one because I actually thought about it earlier when I said the word fart, but then I didn't tell it. So, when I was in undergrad at Murray State University, I was a sorority girl. Yes, exactly what you're thinking. I loved it. Alpha Sigma Alpha, rock on. But I also played intramural football, and I'm standing up because I have to for this. Yeah, and I'm standing up. And I was this person. I don't know sports. What's this person? Uh, I think that's. I don't Center? know. I know the quarterback. Not the I throw it. the football to the quarterback and I'm bending up a that person. Or something like yeah, that. So I, I, I play rugby. I'm not from your country. So I was that person. <laughs> and I was and I was representing the sorority girl. You're the person that goes hut. Yes, I'm the hut person. Right. And we were playing against the real butt, butch, awesome, strong girls. And I was going to show them how cool sorority girls were, were. And I loved anything athletic. I just wasn't good at it, but I loved it. And so we get down. It's on the stadium open field at Murray State University and tons of people are watching and it wasn't tons of people right? it was like a hundred or less but it was very quiet because it was the first game of the season yeah that is exactly what you're thinking and so I've been down and I'm all ready to go and I let out the biggest fart ever I am not kidding you and there was no way to hide it there's no way you could like oh and and it was great we all on Everyone the floor, about laughing. laughing, and these two groups that really never hung out much before, we became very close. So that was something that wasn't controversial, but it was very embarrassing at the time and very funny afterwards. I absolutely love it. What, what an absolute hoot. I mean, it's been such a good sport on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you also for all the positive work that you're doing and the energy you're putting into the profession. It's one of the reasons I love being part of this awesome profession is the work that others are doing. And it's very inspiring to me to see all of that happening out there. If any of you guys want to learn more about what Mia's up to, and I strongly advise you do, then you follow her on Instagram. You do a lot there mm-hmm. and Twitter at Zenvet, Z-E-N-V-E-T 23. Is there any other way you would like people to get in touch with you if they have questions or uh, have opportunities or however? 
or is it are they the channels? Those are definitely the channels. And if I can help in any way, I'm obviously a groupie for the veterinary profession. I may not have the answer, but I would be happy to connect or find a resource. So um, thank you, Dave, so much for having me. This has been joyous, very fun. Thank you for your time. Our thanks once again to the fabulous Dr. Mia Sukeri. Wasn't she an awesome guest? I hope you learned so much from it. And if you're enjoying listening to the show, do not forget to leave me a review on iTunes. Five Star is always very, very welcome and leave comments. Read all the comments and they're very affirming. Help us to stay motivated to bring you more great content. Speaking of which, don't forget about our sister show, the Freewheeling Podcast. It's the Veterinary Business Q&A show. And also don't forget the Vetex Graduate Mentoring Program. If you're wanting to engage and retain your people better that's definitely a place to go check out so until the next podcast be safe be well be happy this is dr dave signing off goodbye